called the bad news in the media over the past weeks, not least the present financial crisis, one piece of really good news has brightened the scene. Remember it came on television just a few days ago and we switched on the normal news and suddenly we, Nita and I both said, wow that's great. The discovery that nine-year-old Shannon Matthews was alive and well. Most of us know from the news bulletins preceding that a month before, Shannon Matthews disappeared, leaving the swimming pool in a hometown of Dewsbury in Yorkshire on February the 19th. And there had been no news whatsoever of her, despite an impassioned appeal by her mother and extensive searches by hundreds of police. And despite the outward face, the public optimism of her family, most people, I guess most of us, feared the worst. For statistically speaking, the, the likelihood of finding a child who has been missing after three weeks is very small indeed. Imagine then the elation when she was discovered alive in a flat just a mile from her home where she had been held by her abductor 24 days after she had gone missing. It was wonderful and headline news. And there were celebrations, as you saw, in the community, street parties, and unbounded joy for her family, and especially her mother and her father as well. Well, today, on this Easter Sunday, we turn to a real-life story which is even more amazing. As we've been following this story of the life of Jesus in Luke's Gospel, that's in the New Testament part of the Bible, if you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, we've called it Good News of Great Joy for All People. But sadly, it looks to all appearances, as you read through the story of Luke's account, and as you come towards the end of it, it looks to all appearances as though the story of Jesus ends with bad news, of great sadness for his followers. Jesus, the one they'd loved and trusted, had been betrayed by one of their inner circle, arrested and tried in haste, convicted and sentenced to death on trumped-up charges. They had seen him nailed to a cross. His death confirmed by the thrust of a soldier's spear into his side. His bloodied body had been taken down hastily laid in a rock tomb, with a huge boulder rolled across the entrance and a detachment of Roman soldiers posted to keep guard. It did indeed look like the end of everything. Bad news of great sadness for the followers of Jesus. But three days later, something unheard of happened, which was to change their lives and indeed the history of the whole world. And in his account, we saw this morning, Luke relates this story in chapter 24, his final chapter. And this evening we come to the story of two particular people whose lives were transformed. I've called it a life-changing encounter. So, we're going to read the story together. You can turn to it in the Bible if you want. It's page 1061. Or it's one of these kind of dramatic stories. I'll try and read it well, hopefully. And you can just listen to it. And I want you to imagine uh, you're there or you're listening in on this story. It's just a wonderfully told story. We're going to read the story and then sing another hymn before we actually look at it. So it's Luke 24, verse 
13. Now that same day, two of them, that's the followers of Jesus, not the apostles, the other people who'd been with him, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and don't know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. What is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us they'd seen the vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, How foolish you are. How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, it's nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and gave thanks, broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up, returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it's true, the Lord has risen. And it appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is a wonderful story, God's word. Now before we look at that, let's sing another great Easter hymn. It's great to have the orchestra playing for us. Thank you again to Donald. Now let's just pray and ask God to help us to understand what we read and study together and also make it real to us personally as it did for those on that road to Emmaus. Gracious God, we pray that Jesus might be made known to us this evening by the presence of the Holy Spirit who takes the Word and makes Him, the living Word, a reality in our lives. Only you can open eyes that are blinded to who Jesus is. Help us to recognize and see Him in all his glory, and be drawn to him as our Lord and Saviour. Amen. Thank you. You guys down below, feel free to, not to just sit there with your backs to me, I think you might be more comfortable. What did you turn? Is that alright? It's okay. 
I felt sorry for you this morning. The church was packed and there was no room for you to sit on the front and you all had to look intelligent facing that way. You can look intelligent facing this way instead. That's good. Thank you very much. Thanks. If you're here this morning, Colin spoke very powerfully from the first part of Luke 24 about evidence for the resurrection. Uh, the second half of Luke 24 is about experience of the resurrection. And I simply want to say you need both. You need evidence if your experience is to be based on truth. Uh, but having all the evidence without the experience is not enough. And so we come to the second half of the chapter and these two are sort of parts of the same whole and I think we're going to make them into a DVD of the two if people are interested to give them to their friends if, if they think that might be helpful. The, this story is a lovely story. It's a kind of dramatic story. Many people believe that Luke who wrote the Gospel got it first-hand from one of the travellers when he was doing his research. A very careful historian. And he probably went to one of them and said, tell me that story. What exactly happened on that road to Emmaus? In fact, some people believe that Luke was one of the travellers, and he was the one that wasn't named. One was called Cleopas, we know, and we don't know the name of the other one. Other people think, and I rather like this actually, other people think that Cleopas, which is short for Cleopatras, that's the, that's the male form of Cleopatra, uh, that it was him and his wife, Mr. and Mrs. Cleopas, or Cleopatras and Cleopatra, I don't know, whatever it was. We, we don't know the details, but it's a very telling story, isn't it? And the, the great thing is, as you read the story, it's a lovely story of, of contrast. It's, it's kind of one of these before and after stories. About these, we'll call them the two travellers, alright? So we don't get in a confusion here. These two travellers, the contrast uh, before and after their encounter with Jesus. So, that's why I've called it a life-changing encounter. need to bring the screen back up down there, Andy, that would be helpful. And uh, what I want to simply do is to highlight three changes that took place, three dramatic changes that took place in their experience and that need to take place in our experience if we're to have a real experience of the risen Lord Jesus Christ even today, 2,000 years on. I want to unpack them in the order in which they occurred and for those who look at their watches and think, how long is this going to go on for? I'm going to take longer on the first one, alright? So don't get too worried if I take too long on the first one. You think, you took all that time on the first one, I'm going to be here till midnight. You won't be, don't, alright, that's fine. Okay, okay, because the first one's the most important in some sense. It's the foundation and all the rest follow on from it. So just, just try and stay with me if you, if you can and I need God's help to explain it clearly. That's why we prayed at the beginning. First of all, notice among these, these two travellers a change of mind. As the two travellers head out of town from Jerusalem to this little village of Emmaus, no one's exactly sure where it was, but it, Luke tells us it's uh, uh, the location. He says 60 stadia, which is about 11 kilometres, and for those like me who still deal in miles, it's about 7 miles. They're walking along this dusty road, it's probably late afternoon, and they're in deep and animated conversation with each other as they walk along the road. So much so that they don't notice this stranger who joins them on their journey, and he interrupts them in their conversation, and kind of butts in, and he says, what are you talking about? And they're astounded at such a question. 
One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem? You don't know the things that have happened there in these days. And he simply says in the original, things? And they pour out their story of the events that have been headline news in Jerusalem, but of particular importance to them personally. And, and what it reveals is that they're in a state of confusion about Jesus of Nazareth. Like all the general population, they were convinced that Jesus was a powerful prophet. Verse 19. He was a prophet, they said, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. Those who heard his powerful preaching over the past three years said, we've never heard anything like this before. Those who witnessed his powerful miracles said, we've never seen anything like this before. And so the evidence from these past three years had left the people in no doubt that Jesus was a prophet sent by God, gifted by God. But notice that these two travellers and the others who were close to Jesus had even higher hopes than everyone else. That Jesus was not just a powerful prophet, but also maybe the promised redeemer. As they explained, but we had hoped he was going to be the one who would redeem Israel. The people of Israel had long expected, through the prophets that God had sent in the past over hundreds of years, uh, that there would be a coming saviour or redeemer, one who would buy his people back, one who would rescue them from their oppressors and liberate them. As God had done in the past when he redeemed his people Israel from slavery in Egypt under Moses. And just a few days previously, it looked to everybody as though it really was going to happen. As Jesus came into Jerusalem on a note of triumph to be greeted by the huge crowds gathered for the Passover festival. And they were singing his praises. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Luke 19 verse 38. But then suddenly... It had all fallen apart. And his certainty that Jesus was the promised Redeemer had been thrown into confusion by what they had witnessed just three days previously. Jesus, the crucified victim. Verse 20. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. Yes, they knew it was a trumped up trial. They knew the religious leaders were motivated by envy. That the verdict and sentence was unjust. But the fact remained, the hard fact remained, they had seen him crucified. Nailed to a cross. You couldn't be under any illusions about that. He was well and truly dead. And if he really was the Redeemer, why had God not prevented this? Because everyone knew that death, that kind of death particularly, was the end. No wonder they were confused then. And they were even further confused, they're going to explain, by recent rumours that very day. And what is more, verse 21 they said, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, this very morning. They didn't find the body. They came and told us they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions, they went to the tomb. Found it just as the women had said, but him they didn't see. Daryl Bock, in his commentary on Luke that we've referred to many times, uh, writes, The travellers are not impressed by the women's report, only astonished by it. What had happened to Jesus' body? The recent news is also part of their discussion. So recent events about Jesus, breaking news about Jesus, only compounds their confusion as they explain to the stranger who has joined them on the journey. Now, of course, we the readers know who the stranger is. 
We know how it's going to turn out. But they didn't. Of course, they recognized him as a normal human being. He wasn't some kind of apparition who came alongside them, some ghost. It was just another man. In fact, Luke goes further and says something interesting. He doesn't just say they they didn't recognize him. He actually says they could not recognize him. Did you notice that in verse 16? But they were kept from recognizing him. Interesting question to ask. Why? Why did Jesus conceal his identity? On other occasions, as we'll see in the next installment, uh, God willing, next week, Jesus often just appeared and said, It is I! And everybody saw who he was and they were filled with praise and amazement. So why not in this case? Well, we're to learn something from this. And it's this, before their eyes are opened, later on in verse 31, their minds need to be opened. They need to understand what had happened to Jesus and why it had happened the way it had happened. Just as he had told them before it happened. And Luke's purpose in writing this this account... This story is to tell us that we also need to understand that everything that happened to Jesus happened according to a plan. In fact, a previous one in our series about three ago, I entitled, Going According to Plan. That everything happened according to God's plan. In their confusion, they needed, in our confusion, we need clarification about the Christ. Instead of confusion about Jesus of Nazareth. We need a change of mind, a change of thinking to see that this man is not just Jesus of Nazareth. He is the Christ, the promised Messiah. So although the travellers don't realise who he is, the stranger rebukes them for failing to understand. It's actually quite gentle. It sounds a bit harsh. He said to them, how foolish you are. How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken about. Thankfully, he doesn't write them off and say, well, you've just blown it. You're not intelligent enough for this job. I'd better go and find some other disciples who've got a bit better understanding. Rather, he comes alongside them. And can I say, he comes alongside us, if you're confused about this whole story. He comes alongside us wherever we're at on our journey. And he comes alongside us in our confusion. He says, what is it you're confused about? He allows us to speak. He allows us to question, to ask things. The greatest thing you can do is explore the Christian faith. Because God has made us with minds to think. He doesn't just come in and zap us, you know. (laughs) He comes and talks to us. He reasons with us. Colin mentioned this morning a little booklet, The Case for Easter. We found a whole load of them in a cupboard somewhere. So we said we'd only got two left. Now, there's about a dozen down there. If you'd like one, Rodney and I will have them at the door as we leave. Just ask us for one. You can take one and read. It's written by an investigative journalist, American Lee Strobel. I just take one of those. So Jesus explains, first of all, what they should have understood. Verse 26, the stranger says, Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? You see, they, like all the people of Israel, read the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, that they were the Hebrew scriptures, they read all the promises about the coming Messiah, the Christ, the words are the same word by the way, Messiah is Hebrew, Christ is Greek, it's just the same word in different languages. But they focused on the coming Messiah, Hebrew, and, and, and they looked at all these promises that promised he would come in great power and glory. And you can find all the verses there in the Old Testament, in the Prophets. But what they failed to see was that the promised Christ, it was also said in Scripture, that first he had to suffer before his glory. 
His suffering was essential if he was to achieve the glory and the victory that God had promised. And he goes on to explain why they should have understood this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures. They should have understood this because it was there in in Moses, the first five books of the Bible. It was there in the prophets. It was there in the Psalms. It must have been an amazing experience. It's probably two or three hours as well. Let's think seven miles, maybe not slow walking. But if you're talking, it goes pretty slowly sometimes, doesn't it? But uh, on that dusty road for a couple of hours, as this stranger began to unpack the scriptures to them, it'd just be lovely to know what he actually said and what, what scriptures did he refer to and how did he prove it. And we can't be absolutely certain. He gives a similar lesson later on uh, when the travellers return to tell the apostles what has happened gathered in that room, if you look just a bit further on at verse 44, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, that Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And we're going to see, if you're with us, and I hope you stay with us, If you live in Edinburgh and worship with us, we're we're moving from Luke to Acts in two weeks' time, God willing. And what we'll see in the book of Acts, right at the beginning, is Jesus spends 40 days with these disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of God. And it's pretty clear to everybody that he explained to them all the Old Testament scriptures. And so, when 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 the early Christian preachers went out, they had all these verses in their minds that had been impressed upon them, and if you read the speeches recorded in the book of Acts, the sermons, you'll find there are key passages that they referred to in the books of Moses and in the Psalms and in the prophets that were used as evidence to prove that the Christ must die and must suffer and be raised from the dead. And this is again one of the most compelling pieces of evidence that the whole thing fits together. Every little bit of evidence is fulfilled as was laid down over hundreds of years that Jesus fulfilled. So their their confusion, their minds, were transformed as he began to talk and reason with them. They moved from confusion about Jesus of Nazareth to clarification about the Christ. And not only that, notice the final thing here, clarification from the Christ. Now beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. He's talking about himself here, although they don't realise it. That's the first thing that needs to happen. A change of mind. Okay, that's a big one. Okay, what follows from it? Well, the next thing is obvious. A change of emotion. Notice, not just the state of mind, but the state of heart of the two travellers. At the beginning of the journey, it's very dramatic when the stranger asks them, what, what are you talking about? It's very, very stark in the original language. Their emotion is one of deep despair. They stood still, their faces downcast. You can usually tell how a person is feeling by looking at their faces. Except in church in Charlotte Chapel, but that's another story. But uh, especially somebody that you know well. If you've been married as I have to someone for 30 years, we don't often always need to say what the other person's feeling. You just look at the face and think, hmm, what's wrong? What's happened? Oh, you look very happy. What's happened? Uh, And the reason why a face is sad, usually, unless, for example, a person is clinically depressed, uh, relates to some event that has happened to them and affected them. 
And we've seen why these, why these two men are so sad. They've invested their lives and hopes in this person, Jesus of Nazareth. And they've experienced the deepest cause of sadness of all, the death of a loved one. The untimely death of a loved one. The unjust death of a loved one. No ordinary death. A criminal's death on a cross. No wonder their faces are downcast. The state of your mind directly affects the state of your heart. But, as the stranger begins to meet with them and talk with them, the change of mind leads to a change of emotion on the part, in the heart, of the two travellers as they reach the end of the encounter. It's a great story. The travellers reach their destination. They're walking along, uh, and here they are. The village comes in sight, probably situated just off the, off the road. And uh, it appears as though the stranger is going to continue. He's going further. But dusk is approaching, and so the two travellers extend an invitation to their companion. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. If you know the old authorised version, the word stay with us is translated, abide with us. It's actually the basis for the hymn that they sing at the cup final, you know, Abide With Me, Fast Falls Even Tide, written by an Anglican Church of England minister near the end of his life. And it's a wonderful hymn, because he, he pictures it and he says, you know, we're saying to, saying to the Lord Jesus, Abide with us, Fast Falls Even Tide, the darkness deepens, Lord with me abide, when other helpers fade and comforts flee, O thou who changest not, abide with me, help of the helpless, O abide with me. It's a hymn we often sing at funerals as well. Because at the end of your life, you want to know that Jesus is a friend, a guest in your life. One that you know. And the invitation that these two travellers make is not just common courtesy or concern for the safety of a traveller at night in those days. There's something about the stranger that draws them to him and they strongly urge him to come in. And, and maybe that's why, very strangely, he acts as the host rather than the guest. At the meal tables, he takes the bread, gives thanks, breaks it, and begins to give it to them. And what follows is this wonderful revelation. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. He disappeared from their sight. There's a sense of deja vu. Not, not from the recent last supper, because they weren't there. Probably from that occasion, or one like it. You remember the feeding of the 5,000 people when Jesus took bread and broke it? And fed a mighty crowd of people, took the bread, blessed and broke, did the same kind of thing. But more than that, it's a divine revelation. The one who prevented them from recognizing Jesus now opens their eyes to see who Jesus is. See, in the last analysis, only God can open blinded eyes. It's, it's a very sobering thing for anyone who, who, who preaches and teaches God's word. Because you can... Give all the evidence. You can preach as hard as you can and as well as you can and you always feel inadequate. I certainly do. Uh, but in the end, it's only God who can open people's eyes. I think of a girl many years ago, one of the most virulent anti-Christian young women I'd ever met. And she started coming to church and hearing the messages. And one Sunday she just came to me and I knew without even saying, I looked at her face and thought, something's happened to her. And she said, I see it! She just said, I've been thinking on it, and suddenly it became clear to who the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. It just radically transformed her life. She, she lives in Glasgow. She's a Glaswegian and really transformed over these years. This is 20, 25 years on. 
Only God can open blinded eyes. But the process begins, as it did with these two travellers, with open minds as God reveals himself through his Son and his Word. That's why as a church we emphasise the Bible. It's not this we've got to fight about, oh, we've got to stand and preach the Bible. This is God's Word in which God makes himself known to us through the Scriptures. And most of all, the Scriptures make Jesus known to us. Because Jesus is in all the Scriptures, right from the beginning to the end. It's not like the Old Testament's before Jesus, New Testament's after Jesus. No, no. The Old Testament's all about Jesus, pointing to his coming. The New Testament's all about when he comes and ending with when he's going to come again. And so, their eyes are opened, and this beautiful expression, their deep despair turns to deep joy. They asked each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Every encounter with Jesus produces deep joy. Here described as hearts that burn. Begins with listening to the voice of Christ as he opens the scriptures concerning himself. And it concludes when we invite him, when we urge him to come into our lives. You see, when they invited him in, they still didn't know the whole story. But they knew enough to trust this man and to invite him in. And some of you maybe are not Christians yet and you're thinking, I need more evidence yet. Listen, you know enough about Jesus. If you've been coming, if you've been reading the gospel with us, following the story, there comes a point where you have to make a commitment and invite him into your life. If you wait to know everything, you'll never come. It's not blind faith. I can use an illustration I've used before. It's like a relationship with the opposite sex. You meet someone and you begin to get to know them. And maybe you're drawn and attracted to them. You don't immediately meet them say, Gosh, I've just met you today. I'd love to get married to you. How about tomorrow? Very rare that happens. Thankfully. <laughs> and it's the same with being a Christian. There's some people just dramatically like they become Christian. But for most people, you need evidence to base that commitment on. But I've known in the past, and nobody here, I'm not thinking of everybody here, I'm thinking way in the past, I think I'm thinking about you, but I've known people in relationships where they've been in relationships for a long time, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and they've still not committed themselves in marriage. And you ask them, well, it's usually the guy actually, to be honest, but you ask them, why, why, why are you not making that final commitment? Oh, well, you know, I, I'm not too sure yet. What are you waiting for? I want to know everything about them before I marry them. You'll never know. But you know enough to love them and to trust them. And, and knowing enough about Jesus to put your trust in him, the Jesus who was revealed in the scriptures to say, Lord, come into my life. Um, that lovely verse in the last book of the Bible, it's actually written to Christians in a church at Ephesus, but it's still a promise to us today, the promise of the risen Christ, that wonderful picture. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Eating, of course, is a sign of intimacy, acceptance, fellowship in the deepest sense. And it's this lovely picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe he's standing at the door of your life on this Easter Sunday evening and he's been knocking at the door and asking to come in. But he won't, he, he's not a gate crusher. He could, but he won't break down the door of your life. He waits for you to invite him in. He's a gracious guest. But while you hear him knocking, while he's there, don't miss the opportunity. So, we're nearly there. Change of mind leads to a change of emotion and obviously the last thing is, it leads to a change of direction. For these two travellers, their journey began from Jerusalem to Emmaus. We aren't told why they were leaving Jerusalem. We can hazard a good guess that they wanted to get away from all the painful memories that the city held for them. 
And their hopes had been dashed. We had hope, they said. Now they had no hope. We don't know why they were going to Emmaus again. We just hazarded a guess that they came from Emmaus and they were going back home. Try and pick up the piece of their lives and start again. Now it seemed as if they had no purpose. But what a transformation with the life-changing encounter with the risen Jesus. It led to a literal change of direction. From Emmaus to Jerusalem, without any thought of darkness or danger, they set off at once down the road they'd just taken. What a different journey it must have seen. And despite the time of day and any tiredness, I'm pretty sure they did the return trip quicker than they did the outward trip. Can't prove that, but... Maybe they ran back down the road, the seven miles, because they just, they just wanted to get back to Jerusalem and tell the others what, they, what had happened. They'd seen Jesus. And now they're filled with hope. A hope they share with the other disciples, who have also received another first-hand report that the Lord is risen. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. Verse 33, they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It's true, the Lord has risen. It's appeared to Simon. And now they have a new purpose in life. It's to share their experience that Christ is risen from the dead. Then the two told what had happened on the way, how Jesus was recognized them by them when they broke the bread. Daryl Bock again comments, The key is Jesus who in resurrection reveals that life is worth living. He reveals that life is found in him. If God is at work in saving Jesus, then he is at work in the message about Jesus as well. And he concludes, from faith should come faithfulness and service. God's word of promise to us should become a proclaimed word of hope to others. You see, here's the test. If you've met with the risen Christ, if your life has been turned around, then you have a new purpose in life. And at the heart of it, you long that... Two things. One, that you can share with other people who've had the same experience, which is why we come together week by week and just celebrate songs like we've sung this evening. But secondly, you want to share with other people who've not had the experience yet and tell them, Jesus is alive, the Lord is risen indeed. I I, I ask you this evening, do you have that hope which extends beyond the grave? If so, you'll be a person with a purpose in life. To share that hope with those who have no hope. We've been focusing on this in our small groups. Blowing your cover. Being more intentional in sharing with the people. I hope you've got your six people that you're praying for. had a great time in our group the other week sharing how how we'd been able to share with people. And one one of the students there shared how one of the people on our list had come to faith two weeks before. It's just amazing. Great. What, What an encouragement. What a challenge. Wonderful. We should always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks us the reason for the hope that we have within us. That's the mark of a Christian that you want to share your faith with other people. But I'm nearly finished. Let me finish with a true story. With an actual date. On May the 24th, 1738, that's a long time ago. It's a story about a, a church minister, church of England minister, Minister. He'd been a missionary. His name was John Wesley. And he had a similar experience, a heartwarming experience. Here's how he describes it. Here are the very words of his own journal. In the evening, I went very unwillingly, maybe some of you are unwillingly this evening, to a society in Aldersgate Street, that's in London, where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. A man called William Perkins was just reading Luther's commentary, Martin Luther's commentary from centuries back, two centuries back, on Galatians. 
about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. Sound familiar words? Found my heart strangely warmed. He continues, I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. In the Bible Speaks Today commentary on Luke, Michael Wilcott's comments, it was William Holland's reading of Luther's commentary on Paul's epistle, but even at those three removes, Wesley heard the voice of the living Christ and found in it salvation. Do you see the three removes? Here's a man reading Luther's commentary on the book of Romans, written by the Apostle Paul, and he meets the Lord Jesus Christ through that, and his heart is strangely warmed. Well, you know the story. Wesley's life took on a new direction. As he travelled the length and breadth of Britain, preaching the good news about Jesus, many people believed that it was through Wesley and Whitfield that we were saved in this country from a French Revolution or something equivalent. And the story continues down to our generation. Like Wesley, you can receive a new hope in life, a new direction in life through the risen Lord Jesus Christ. For Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Have you had that experience? Not just the evidence, but the experience on which, which leads from that evidence. That experience which is based on evidence that is reliable and true as you meet with the risen Lord Jesus Christ by His Holy Spirit. Let's pray together as we conclude.